Welcome to the Iron Butterfly Podcast, co-produced by the National Security Institute and the Amazing Women of the IC, better known as AWIC. My name is Megan Jaffer, and I will be your host. Eighty years ago, Eloise Page joined the Office of Strategic Services, or the OSS, a predecessor for what we recognize today as the United States Intelligence Community. Page started as a secretary, but worked her way to becoming a case officer, and later she became the first female chief of station at CIA. Along the way, she earned the nickname Iron Butterfly, known for being a fierce fighter with a core of steel. The Iron Butterfly podcast aims to continue her legacy, inviting the U.S. intelligence community's unsung heroines to share their stories with aspiring IC leaders. On this episode, we are joined by Molly Salisbury. Molly is an Army intelligence colonel currently serving as the chief data officer for the 18th Airborne Corps. She has spent over 20 years in active duty roles ranging from intelligence and policy to research and development. From 2014 to 2016, Molly served on the National Security Council as the Director for Counterterrorism and most recently completed a fellowship at MIT's Lincoln Laboratory. Throughout her career, Molly spent time in several special operations units and deployed through Central and South Asia, the Middle East, and North and West Africa. Next year, she is slated to take command of the 513th Military Intelligence Brigade. Molly, we are so excited to have you today. Thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. I'm really excited to be here today. Well, we're excited too. So to kick us off, we would love for you to share with us a bit about your background and upbringing. How did you end up in the Army? Sure. So my path in the Army is probably not unlike many of your your listeners or um, other Army soldiers. I'd say that um, maybe the Army found me. I'm not sure that <laughs> how I found the Army. But I grew up in Orlando, Florida. I was very involved in sports at a young age. I, I swam, I ran, and then I found kind of the one of the loves of my life, which was rowing. Um, but I also grew up grew up in a, a family that was rich with stories from both my grandfathers and my about World War II and my father about Vietnam. And so, as I was looking for just kind of where I was going to to go to school, I started to see advertisements and information about ROTC and ROTC scholarships. And at this point, I really had no idea what I wanted to do and be, but I re- I definitely recognized that I wanted to be on the water somewhere rowing, um, and I wanted to see the world, and I definitely uh, wanted to pay for school. So I knew I wanted to get out of Florida um, and go up north because that's where all the good rowing is. Um, so you can kind of see what was uh, what was animating my decision there. <laughs> um, and so, you know, then four years later, after, um, after rowing in college and, um, and going through just a fantastic experience in ROTC, I was commissioned into the Army as a second lieutenant in military intelligence. About that time, I started to realize what I wanted to be, uh, which was in the Army. <laughs> oh, there you go. So it took a little bit, but it, it, you got there. So you mentioned that you played sports during high school and college, and I'm sure many of our listeners um, can relate to that. Uh, How do you think your experience as an athlete shaped your outlook and approach as a leader in the Army? So, you know, as I kind of mentioned, rowing was definitely something that um, just kind of captivated me from the moment that I started in, in a small club in Orlando. Um, I think part of what captivated, captivated me is that it's a, it's a team sport. It's all about 
um, your coaches, the fellow members of your team, um, the club that you're involved with. So whether it was the other women in my program or the, the other young men that were in my program, we all formed this really special bond. And so the team aspect of it was, I think, you know, the first big draw that I really, really appreciated and still um, sticks with me today is as kind of my approach as a leader, what's most important. But I think there were some other things that um, as I got more into rowing, um, really cemented my values and, and kind of how I approach leadership now. Um, one of them is commitment. You know, I think that um, when you and, and anyone, I think in, in most team sports and individual sports forms this commitment um, to something that's bigger than themselves and this accountability, whether it's early mornings or it's late night studying or it's managing your time so that you can do Saturday, Sunday meets, things like that. That commitment, I think, is um, is really important and helped me, um, I think, navigate my way in the Army. Um, another thing is that I learned in, in those early years, I think, was um, the value of being outside and being present in the moment during practice and um, during uh, races. I, I can't really um, explain how many cold or wet mornings I've had on the water or, you know, how hot some practices are, but you start to really realize how important it is to just get outside for your physical health, but also your mental health and how much now, as I think back on it, how much I appreciate those moments of being outside and being present and, and how much that it it also just helps with stress relief. It helps with wellness. It helps with, with all those things um, that, really, I think, matter to me now in, in terms of um, leadership. And then the other thing I'd say is being a competitor. I had a coach early on that used to say strong women row to win. And we, uh, we, I would always say that over and over again to myself in my head, strong women row to win. Um, but that idea that winning matters, uh, I think it really starts to, to stick with you, or it certainly stuck with me. Um, but, you know, now I think when the, the race is with myself. It's not necessarily um, always about winning matters in the sense of, of beating the, the people next to you. It's about that commitment that I mentioned of being a competitor, even when it's just with yourself. Um, and, and so I think that that idea um, of just being, being fiercely competitive, um, that also just kind of forms, you know, or formed my values. So all of these things, I think, contribute now today to my my approach to leadership. I love that. And I think something that you mentioned about commitment, um, in addition to what you mentioned about commitment is, you know, the commitment to others in both instances, right? Like your commitment to your team, being accountable to your team and being committed to, you know, those that you lead in the army and being accountable to them too, right? So I I love that. Um, So you talk about your career trajectory in the army in terms terms of what you call pivotal moments. Um, Would you mind sharing what some of those were for you and why you chose to stay in the service? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, pivotal moments kind of build on what you just mentioned to to the the effect of that commitment to others, that commitment to team. Um, For me, I think my first pivotal moment was getting assigned to Hawaii as a second lieutenant intelligence officer Maybe the moment I stepped off the plane, I realized just what an amazing, beautiful place it was. Um, and, you know, it's, it still remains probably very high in my list of favorite places in the, on earth. But some of that might be because of the experience that I had there. 
Um, Hawaiians have this beautiful culture. It's not just about the physical place. It's also about their culture. Um, and I was part of a unit with just a lot of fantastic people and a lot of fantastic soldiers and leaders. And so I think that that was probably my, you know, my first introduction to the army was doing what I wanted, which was seeing the world, but it was seeing this amazingly different, beautiful place and culture that, um, culture of what they call Ohana, which is family and all my friends out there who were other lieutenants and other, several of my, my college friends were out there teaching. Um, it was truly an, an amazing Ohana. And I met some of my first mentors out there. And so that was probably the first one. So that was a, a really important kind of couple first years for me. And then when I was out there, I had the chance to go on an assignment to Bosnia for several months. And so this was, um, I think, right after or right before 9-11. So I think Bosnia was um, the first time that I had been to anywhere far away. And it was the first time that I had interacted with people who had been through a major conflict and war and tragedy. And so to me, this was a, a very pivotal moment where I, I started to kind of understand the world and think about um, the remnants of this ethnic religious war and, and the aftermath of that and what it meant. And so, you know, when I think forward to where we, where we are in the world today, and um, I think it's really important to kind of consider, you know, how wars end and, and how long those tragedies stick with, uh, stick with nations and cultures and people. And so right. that Bosnia experience, um, both for the soldiers that I went with and just the people in Bosnia that I had the opportunity to interact with um, was extremely important to me, I think informative. And then I think 9-11 for most of us, um, I think it, it probably was one of the, the key pivotal moments. Um, after 9-11, several years after 9-11, um, I got an opportunity to work with special operations. And I think I would probably bundle several of those experiences as a pivotal moment where I learned the basics and the all the way to the graduate level of doing intelligence. And I think for, for me, there's kind of three or four things that I would say as an intelligence officer, um, I learned during those kind of initial years in soft. The, the first is functionally how important all the different mechanics of intel are. There's, you know, each one of the different intel disciplines, humans, so you get geospatial intelligence, open source, all of them have these important functional roles. Um, so that was really accessible to me as a soft intelligence uh, professional. Um, you start to realize the value of partnerships and with the joint intelligence and the, the broader USIC. Um, and so that, became really, really uh, important to me. And then I started to learn the value of getting really deep on your target set and regional intel. Um, I worked as a task force J2 on some of the, the kind of key operations in the Middle East. And then I got to work in North Africa and West Africa and learning really deeply understanding the analytics of your target set was important. And then I'd say the other thing that I learned was um, partnerships and partnerships with other military and intelligence leaders um, not just American, but, uh, you know, I probably um, have had some of my best conversations with not American intelligence uh, professionals. And so I learned that through through SOF and the, the value of partners, um, European partners, Middle Eastern, Middle Eastern partners, North African partners that um, that truly, you know, I think um, both on a personal level and then on a collective level improved our mission set. So yeah, I'd say those were probably some of the, the most impactful pivotal moments for me. Those are wonderful. And I love that you mentioned 
the partnerships and the collaboration, because I think people often forget about that and that there are these international partnerships and collaborations that make, um, make these things work. Right. And so thank you for mentioning those. Those were great. So, you know, you mentioned you ended up in special operations community. Um, how did, how did that happen? How did, how did you end up there? Um, kind of a roundabout way. Actually, I was uh, in 2005, I was working for uh, one of my, I, I've had many mentors along the way, but one of my mentors was um, a gentleman named Rich Ellis. And Colonel at the time, Rich Ellis um, came from a pretty deep uh, special operations background. And he just believed in me and he encouraged me to develop both as an analyst and to really become expert in my field. And I think he could see that I needed something a little bit different and that I was really excited about the mission set about, um, you know, I worked for him in Iraq at the time. And so when we were coming back from Iraq, um, we talked about kind of what I was going to do next. And he said, you know, I think there's this opportunity at the special forces group. I think you should try it. And I was so impacted by the fact that he thought that I could do this and that this was, um, this was that he believed in me. Um, and, and so I was just really excited to try it. And he kind of said, you know, this is how I um, got my introduction to to soft, and so I was all in. <laughs> so, um, if Colonel Ellis thought it was a good idea, I thought it was a good idea, and um, and that was kind of the the way I started. And then I stayed with it for the mission and the people. And it was um, he was a good judge of character. He was a human turd by trade. Um, sadly, he's since passed, but um, but he. He really, I think, understood my um, just a love of, of people and of soldiers and of mission um, and that commitment. And, and so he kind of nudged me that direction. And I spent uh, a good decade or so in that field. Wow. And the beauty of a mentor, of a good mentor, right? I'd love to ask, if you don't mind, what was your experience like as a woman in special operations? I think it's a common m- misconception that women cannot serve in these roles. Yeah, I, I I agree. I think there's some misconception out there, but um, overall, I'd say my experience as a woman has was and is has been very very positive in special operations. And the the reason for that, I'd say, is that special operations um, tends to care about what you've done lately and what you're contributing to the team now. <laughs> there's very little emphasis on um, gender, sexual orientation, thing, things of that nature become much less important because the mission and your contributions to the mission um, are really important. They're, they're a culture that um, loves to give feedback. Uh, one of my favorite mentor uh, guidance pieces is feedback is a gift. And, and, you know, I think we hear that cliche, but it truly is something that they embrace. And so um, I, as a woman, I got fair feedback and I got um, guidance and mentorship. And, um, you know, there's always going to be a few individuals along the way that you may have a, a negative experience with. Um, I did not have a, many of those. I had a, a couple of them, but I felt like because feedback and direct communications is valued, I could provide that. And so I think that um, it made it, it made it a good fit for me. Well, that's, that's great. And I think it's encouraging for any young woman you know, interested in this, in this path. So that's, that's good to hear. So following your time at JSOC, you worked for a short stint at the National Security Council or the NSC. What was your experience like for you? And could you share a couple impactful stories with us from that time? 
Yeah. So the National Security Council for me um, kind of tracks with some some guidance that I got, some mentorship that I got from one of one of my mentors. And and I've heard this from others since then. But she, I remember when she said it to me. She said, "Go to the most tactical places you can, and go to the most strategic places you can." And so when the opportunity to go to the NSC came along, she said, well, you should take this. And I was I was not 100% sure I should do it because I was really committed to the team that I was um, where I was at the moment. Um, but it kind of in hindsight would have been such a, a loss and a miss um, to not go. So the, the NSC was just filled with so many people that... Uh, I wouldn't say they were always like-minded because that's kind of the beauty of the NSC is you get, um, you get, I think, like, like work ethic and you get um, like commitment, but uh-huh. everybody comes with, uh, with maybe strong views and passion um, and commitment to represent uh, the nation. And, and so I think that that is um, maybe intoxicating. I mean, it's just fantastic to be a part of a team. And so I was part of NSC 44 and I worked for an incredible group of, of people and, a, and with an incredible group of people um, that truly changed and shaped my life. And so the first thing I'd say in terms of experiences is that I went there as the global ISIS director in, in 2014 to 2016. And that was a very, um, it was just a really busy time um, for ISIS. And, and so their trajectory was not going the direction we we wanted, and so their rise at that moment was, you know, not necessarily something that we had had seen completely. And so it was a fairly stressful time, I think, initially for me just to learn the national security apparatus. But the it, the most impactful thing was just my peers and how much they mentored me and how much they um, they taught me about the different instruments of of the national. Um, national security apparatus. And so that was probably the biggest thing. Um, And just to see how a whole process can work. I had a boss um, who is now the director of CISA, uh, Jen Easterly, and she was, um, she still is (laughs) incredible at running a process that's um, really, I think, takes into account and considers all views. And so um, learning and understanding how to run that process is, uh, was really impactful for me. And then I think also learning um, the importance of the NSC and convening and connecting. I was there for the hostage policy review. Um, I was there for several countering violent extremist uh, initiatives. And both of those things are are just extremely different in terms of the crowds that they bring and the the leaders that they bring. But when, um, when the White House and the NSC convenes and they're able to connect, it is very powerful um, what comes out of that, not necessarily what's in the room that moment, but what's mm-hmm. what comes out of that in terms of your second and third and um, and then years after. And so I'd say the the last thing in terms of NSC experiences is um, I was there at a unique time and I got a, a chance to witness female leadership in a way that I hadn't necessarily. And, and that certainly left an imprint on me. So from my, my immediate boss, um, Jen Easterly, to um, the Homeland Security Council lead, uh, Lisa Monaco, um, to the deputy director of Avril Haines, to the national security advisor, Susan Rice, 
just to see them interact and to see, you know, it's not always about having the same style. So what it gave me was a preview into so many different female leadership styles that, um, that I was able to kind of take the little things from them, but then also take big things like how well they, they made an effort to work together, um, and to, to support one another. So, so that was really awesome. And then, you know, at, at the NSC, you, you form lifelong friends through departments and agencies that as you go back to your own department or agency, you then maintain those. And so I think that's really the long lasting value. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of that. I don't think we've had anyone on that has talked about the NSC like this. And it's, it's just, it's, it's awesome and it's powerful. And I think we could do a whole episode just on this and your stories from the NSC. So thank you so much. Through our conversation thus far, um, you've talked a lot about your mentors, both men and women, and it sounds like you've had very impactful men and, and women mentors. How have these mentors shaped your career in intelligence and national security? Wow. I, we probably could do a whole episode just on that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, um, I'm sure. But, um, you know, I think sometimes we go at mentors as they, they're always senior. And as I was thinking about it a little bit um, on, on one of my runs this week, you know, mentors for me have been, um, they started with senior NCOs. And so each of my senior non-commissioned officers has kind of mentored my perception and understanding of how to be um, an empathetic but fair leader. Um, I also think that our peers tend to be really important mentors to us. Um, so, you know, I have a, we probably all have our WhatsApp groups and our signal groups and chats and things. And, you know, one of my signal chats that I maintain as a group of, of my peers, and there's probably not a day that goes by that one of them doesn't give me some sort of coaching and mentorship. And then I have a group of like a smaller group of, of tech mentors, and I'm older than all of them. And I think that, you know, that there's, um, there's just that the beauty now of virtual mentorship that we all get is, um, is probably we could write some books on that as well. But, um, but then I've also had senior mentors in the army that I think have, have given me advice but more importantly, they've set examples that I, I now try to emulate. You know, I think about one of my first mentors in the army was Ryan Janovic, and he was so good at being expert and he is so good at being expert in his trade. Um, and he taught me the value of, of really knowing and understanding how to speak the language of Intel and of operations that to go into a room of, of army maneuver commanders and staff officers, you kind of have to speak their language. But then I think about Michelle Schmidt or Michelle Bradenkamp. They, they both taught me a lot about believing in myself and about going, you know, both with what's in my gut, but also the direction that was important to me in my life at, at that moment. Um, and then I, I think about my boss, my most recent boss as a J2 is um, General Chris Donahue. And he is just unbelievable in terms of his ability to, to just, he constantly says, be unbeatable. And when you're in his presence, you want to be unbeatable. <laughs> and so I love um, that. He, he's also just this, I think, able to connect with everybody at the, at, at the same level. I think some of us sometimes um, without realizing it, we put space between who we're talking or working with. Um, but he's able to connect with everybody um, and everybody's you know, uh, on his level. It's, um, it's hard to ex- explain what that means, but there's no hierarchy, I think. And he kind of takes that, he takes that away um, in all the, the best ways. And then I think about like General Hale and Tony Hale, and he's um, 
he really leads by example in terms of how he treats his subordinates and how he really um, does a fantastic job of caring for his subordinates. And so those examples that I've had have, have left an imprint on me. Um, but it, it would be, I'd be remiss if I didn't also say that, you know, my senior, I didn't name them by name, but my senior NCOs, my peers, they, they are equally important, I think, um, in terms of just day to day and uh, mentorship, life mentorship and professional mentorship. Well, I love that you mentioned both people that are junior to you and senior to you. And I think that that is something that a lot of people should take into account. I think some of the mentors that I have that I've had are younger than me too, that have taught me amazing things. And so I, I love that you mentioned, you mentioned both. So thanks for sharing that. So you left the NSC about five years ago. Uh, what have you been up to since then? What are you doing and what's meaningful to you? And, you know, what's next? Yeah, so when I left the NSC, um, after two years, I was uh, I was a little tired, I think. <laughs> but, <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, maybe, maybe not physically tired, but I think I was a little, uh, I was ready to do something other than, than counterterrorism and Middle East regional issues. And so when I left, um, I had a chance to go back to Army and to SOF and to be a G2 again. Um, and I got a, a really unique opportunity to deploy as a J2 to a multilateral um, mission. And there, there were over 20 partners at the, this mission. And in it, I had an opportunity to work with a ton of um, open source intelligence and started to see the volumes of data kind of piling up in the world, uh, if you will. And so I, I can remember I had a lot of aha moments in, I think this was around 2016, 2017. And I started working with um, some real innovative tech leaders in the army and, um, and within JSOC. And I just I think maybe this this kind of change of mission and change of focus and change of outlook and starting to kind of see the direction the world was headed, um, it kind of spoke to my roots. I've always been a bit of a nerd, uh, and I've always very much been kind of a futurist. And I, you know, I love science fiction and I love thinking about the future creatively. And so I just I I had an opportunity to interact with several IC leaders and several. Um, tech leaders that were started to show me the value of data and the importance of data. Um, and I had a really good friend um, at the, the unit that I was with, and she and I kind of started to go down this journey together. Um, she since went and got her PhD in data science. Uh, I did not. <laughs> uh, but, <laughs> um, but, um, but yeah, I just, I got a chance to, I kind of, I, sometimes I say I fell off the deep end on tech. Um, and, and so I started to kind of, think a lot about what the future of um, the future of army intelligence, the future of intelligence, and more importantly, the future of national security looks like. And I think that that future is kind of inextricably linked to tech and data. And so from there, I spent about two years or so doing my, my G2 time. And then General Miller, um, the JSOC commander, who, who I also consider a mentor, he said, you know, you seem like you're really into this. Um, why don't, uh, and he invited me to be the director of JSOC X at that point. Um, and then I got a chance to be do a little more J2ing. And then um, the Army said, well, since you like this so much, we're going to send you to a fellowship at, uh, at MIT and with the Lincoln Lab. And um, and so now I've had about five years of just being able to work kind of back and forth between 
um, intel and operations and being able to experiment. And um, it just led to so much learning, you know, when, when I think about um, the last couple of years, tons of learning, tons of um, opportunity to try to think through how to experiment with data and what the future looks like. And so after the fellowship, the Army sent me back to um, to to the force. And so now I'm at 18th Airborne Corps, fully hooked on data, uh, working with <laughs> a project called Ridgeway and Scarlet Dragon, which is, uh, you know, our, um, our opportunities to leverage today's technology for today's problems and to, to work on data-centric warfare. Uh, so it, it's been just incredible to be back at Fort Bragg and incredible to, um, to work with the folks that I get to work with right now at the 18th Airborne Corps. And then next summer, um, I'm going to take command of the 513th Military Intelligence Brigade. Oh, wow. Well, you just, you keep going. It's, 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 a uh, it's nonstop and you keep charging ahead, which is amazing. I can't believe this is almost over. Um, I feel like we packed a lot into this episode and, um, like I said, I think we could have spent a couple episodes on a few of these topics, but before <laughs> I let you go, As you know, we end each episode with the same question. And in keeping with the name of our podcast, Iron Butterfly, if you had to give yourself a code name, what would it be and why? Um, Yes, the big question. (laughs) I feel like I I need to get a drum roll. I've never said that, but I feel like it's like... (laughs) I think we might need a drum roll. So I thought about a few different ways to answer the code name question. Um, And then I was was talking with a good friend of mine. um, And I will say, I also like, uh, you know, I I grew up working at Disney. I love Marvel Comics. Um, I like the Iron Spider. And, or the Iron Man and like Iron Spider that from there's a tech reference there. Um, but I'd say that I'm also just a huge believer in building a web and a network of, of, um, of friends and colleagues. And so I'm a spider for sure. I like oh, a web, yes. uh, a web of contacts, but, but I'd say I'm also kind of somebody who likes to stay out of the spotlight. Um, a lot of the last 10 or 12 years of of my career has been very much um, low key, not publishing things, not, not much on social media. Um, and so I'm, I'm kind of a shadow. So I think I'm a shadow spider. I think that's where I land. <laughs> I love that for so many different reasons. I love the <laughs> visual of your network being like this web. Um, uh, that's, that's fantastic. That is a good one. I think people are going to love it. Um, Many Molly, in the web don't feel they can leave, but <laughs> <laughs> but that means you got them. It doesn't matter. They're they're in there. Um, I love it. This was so much fun. Thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. Most importantly, thank you for your service to our country. And um, I hope I hope you had a little bit of fun today with us. Oh, thank you guys for, for inviting me to do this. You know, I've listened to so many of your Iron Butterfly podcasts. Um, I, I love and appreciate the team that puts this together for, um, for so many people. So thank you guys for your work. And I hope, uh, I hope that you guys keep at it. I love the Iron Butterfly. Oh, well, thank you. 
This has been an episode of Iron Butterfly, co-produced by the Amazing Women of the IC and the National Security Institute at George Mason Scalia Law School. To find out more about AWIC, email us at awicpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. You can also learn more about NSI and upcoming events at nationalsecurity.gmu.edu. If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Stay fierce, and we'll talk next time. Thank you.